a committee as well. Welcome, everybody. Um, the music has stopped, so we can begin. Uh, my name is Andrew Steer. I'm the president and CEO of the Bezos Earth Fund. Um, the exam question for today is a really important one. Um, essentially, corporations and um, cities and even countries have uh, made uh, amazing commitments over the last uh, few years. Um, and, uh, and they're doing their best, at least most of them are. Um, it's actually quite difficult, and they're being criticized at the moment quite a lot for greenwashing. Even the, the Secretary General of the United Nations you know, uh, accused them of uh, pretty bad dishonesty. Um, and in some cases, that's very warranted. In other cases, corporations are actually trying to do the right thing but they're worried that actually, if they keep a high profile, um, they're just going to be criticized more and more, and it's almost a no-win situation. So it, it runs the risk of reducing the momentum that we had. So we want to have a very honest discussion about that. And we're going to focus on one sort of part of the issue, which is the nature agenda. And in the nature agenda, the issue is companies, um, either as part of their for-profit work or as part of their voluntary carbon market work, they're investing in uh, developing countries and in rich countries, various investments in protecting forests and restoring land and doing all kinds of other things. At the same time, you know, there's evidence that some are actually being quite harmful. And so, um, so we've got a, a really remarkably well-qualified panel here. Um, we've got uh, Suzanne DiBianca sitting here in the middle, who I'm going to ask the first question to, who is uh, with Salesforce. But in addition to that, she is um, uh, a leader in the Trillion Trees um, a program. So I want to start with you, and then I'll introduce the rest of you as we, as we go along, I think. Um, very, very interesting report just come out by the World Economic Forum. I would urge you to look at it, um, and by the Trillion Trees um, initiative. It's called Embedding Indigenous Knowledge in the Conservation and Restoration of Landscapes. Mm -hmm. And this is one very, very important element of the issue. So potential unintended damage can be ecological in nature, um, but it could also refer to human rights issues and social issues and just inappropriate failure to engage with indigenous people. And that's why I'm so happy uh, we have Helena here, uh, Gwalinga, who is um, a leader of a youth uh, movement um, for indigenous people. And we're going to ask her to say some words a little bit uh, later on. Since I've introduced two of you, maybe I'll introduce all four of you now. Um, Catherine Garrett Fox at the far end is an investor um, as uh, a CEO of uh, GIB Asset Management. Um, but in addition to that, she's chair of CDP, uh, the Carbon Disclosure Project, as it used to be called, which is the place where you record the emissions each year. Um, and then finally, we've got Luis um, de Amaral, uh, who is um, also Brazilian. Um, but uh, for today's purpose, he is the CEO of the Science-Based Targets Initiative. And of course, the SBTI is the place you go to to set your target. So we've got some pretty relevant people on the panel here. Suzanne, 
Um, Salesforce has been a leader in so many aspects on climate. But if you could say just a word about how you're engaging in nature and how do you, how do you think about this uh, tough issue of greenwashing, um, making sure standards are high, not slowing things down, over to you. And by the way, I'm gonna, the way we're going to organize this, they're going to speak for two or maximum three minutes each. And then we're going to open it up to a conversation for everybody can ask questions. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, um, Andrew, for moderating and um, uh, inspired to be here with my fellow panelists. You know, Salesforce is focused on three things, really primarily as it relates to climate. Net zero now, we have a, you know, we've built a, an incredible technology product that enables transparency, which I think is key to the green watching uh, conversation. The second is nature positive, um, a trillion trees, has been a complete pleasure to work on and we had the opportunity to celebrate our success collectively uh, yesterday um, at that effort, being at 125 billion against a very aggressive target. And the third is ecopreneurs um, and investing in incredible um, entrepreneurs that are working on climate solutions. So you know, as, as that relates to nature, there's, a, there's just a few things that I kind of want to underline. Um, the first is you know, transparency is key. And if, when we think about our, you know, we've made a hundred million uh, commitment just within our own company against the Trillion Tree Goal. And we put up a website called salesforce.trees.com. It's actually white labeled. Many of our corporate partners uh, can also use this technology, but it, it sort of demonstrates where we're investing over time. And you can read about the projects. Uh, so again, we think transparency builds trust. And we want to be really out there um, with what we're doing. Same on the ecopreneur side. Um, we've invested in a great entrepreneur, many, um, Silvera, which is a, is a rating agency. So now in the, in the carbon markets, you know, we're starting to see sort of layers to try to get to the quality issue. They use LIDAR and satellite technology um, to measure and rate these projects on the ground. Calix and, is another one. So they're, you know, we're continuing to look at, at quality as being really paramount. And to your point about a, having an honest conversation, you know, yesterday we were approached by a reporter to ask us about our participation in a project where they had found some human rights abuses. And we had pulled ourselves out of that project in 2020 because we couldn't get verified data. Um, and I think that from a corporate's perspective, you know, I, I don't know how many people in the room have seen the, saw the John Oliver piece on the carbon markets. If you haven't, you should watch it. But it scared a lot of corporates, really called out people for projects that they unknowingly had that in some cases were hunting lodges um, that were already in nature preserves. But what I learned from that, and I just spent some time in New York with, um, or sorry, London, with Helen Clarkson, who runs the climate group, who I adore. And I hadn't thought about it from this perspective. She's the founder of, of Climate Week. And she said, when corporations don't talk, we can't do our jobs. We can't, we don't know where to focus our efforts. We can't properly lobby um, in partnership with corporations. So it really hinders us from the work that we have to do. And I'd never thought about it through that lens, but you know, I, we, Andrew and I were just on another panel together and, you know, my mantra in this area is like, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Um, we have got to go fast and 
as much as we can, we've got to continue to bring transparency mm. to the effort. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Catherine, um, the investment community wants to do the right thing, but you can't be monitoring you know, on the front lines yourselves. Uh, you need some system of information. Um, talk about what you need. <clears throat> So in your, in your kind introduction, you said, I, I come wearing two hats, which is true. Uh, so on the one hand, GIB Asset Management, we're a London-based asset manager, very much focused around scaling capital, supporting sustainable development, um, specifically for a number of our investors based in the Middle East. The other hat I wear, uh, as you said, Andrew, is um, I'm very honored to chair CDP, uh, which for more than 20 years has pioneered data uh, in the environmental reporting space. So I think that you know, the debate this week has been, um, I suppose, quite interesting because people are very easy to give up on ESG um, and sort of move on. And we know that actually when you look at market participation uh, and action over the last 12 months, if you were investing in that space, you probably haven't done so well. So you're probably having a bit of a hard time from your board, uh, your clients saying, what on earth are you thinking? Um, what I would say is keep the faith because there is a period of time when all markets have a cycle. And I think what we look for as investors is increasingly to call out those companies that aren't doing the right thing. And let me be honest, um, my, my real sense is greenwashing has many faces, but one of them hides behind a veil of simplicity. Well, what do I mean by that? It's because initially people were very quick to report on things that were easy to do. But as an investment company, when you then go and scratch below the surface, you then found that quite a lot of what they're doing just wasn't substantiated. And hence why, uh, as you indicated, Andrew, certain corporates are stepping back. They're sort of going back under the radar with this green hushing idea, which actually you know, isn't, isn't the answer at all. Um, equally, there's been a real phenomenon across Europe where investment strategies, investment funds that were set up to help investors participate in things like nature-based solutions uh, and the whole move towards supporting companies um, addressing climate change, a number of them weren't doing what they said they were doing on the tin. And undoubtedly, people have started to call them out. So under sustainable finance uh, regulation, big asset managers, not just in Europe, but across the world, have stepped back from saying that their, are, that their funds are the highest rating, which would be Article 9 under European regulation. And actually what you've seen in the last quarter of 22 was that funds who still were doing what they said they were doing attracted new money and everybody else saw money run out the door because people suddenly realized that the emperor had no clothes. So at GIB, we're really tackling this in two ways. Firstly, we're stepping up to actually do what we say we're doing. So we're supporting a number of initiatives. Um, and actually, with Salesforce, we're, we've been part of Friends of Ocean Action for some years. We've issued four papers on blue finance, really trying to work out how can we scale and get private sector investment into a space that, to date, has been relatively unfunded. Um, we're also involved in the Mangroves Working Group. Unsurprisingly, the Middle East is a part of the world upon which they depend on mangroves. Um, and so we're very much involved in those two initiatives. And my last point coming back to what investors are looking for, um, I come with a CDP hat on. As I said, we've reported, um, we've been a reporting depository for organizations, cities, investors for more than 20 years. But last year, just before Montreal, when we were really trying to focus on biodiversity, 
we issued um, a questionnaire to around 8,500 organizations as to whether they could disclose what they were doing around nature. The good news is 90% of them came back and said, we're doing some cool things, we have plans to do this, that, and the other. The less good news is that really only half of them have done anything. And so my personal sense is that the way forward, which is where Louise comes in, is we just have to live in a world where mandatory reporting is going to become more relevant. It isn't enough to be sort of voluntary and hope that no one calls you out. And investors will look to the data because the theory of change that CDP believes in is disclosure drives insight and insight drives action. And action is what investors want to see on the ground. Mm, well said. Thank you very much, uh, Catherine. It's great to have Elena uh, Gwalinga here. Uh, she is the co-founder of the Indigenous Youth Collective for the Amazon. And you're based in Ecuador, I believe. Tell us just a, a little bit about your organization, but then what your concern is and uh, how you see this issue. Yeah, um, well, I come from an indigenous community called Sarayaku in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Uh, we have a very long history of fighting big oil. Uh, Ten years ago now, we were able to also kick out big oil from our community, so we do have no oil exploration in our territories. Um, despite that, despite really important regulation being uh, happening in, in Ecuador when it comes to indigenous people's rights after that, um, we still have threats to our territories. Uh, and we still have threats to our territories because we have neighbors that have threats to, our to their territories. Um, so what the youth, the youth collective focuses on, um, we've, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a group of young people. We all come from different nations and different uh, communities across the Ecuadorian Amazon. We all face different types of uh, uh, threats. Um, amongst them are deforestation, mining, oil, and um, hydroelectric power stations, actually. One of my best friends, uh, him and his community, the young people were able to actually kick out an entire company uh, on their own just like four or five years ago now. Um, so uh, it's, it's really, a, you know, young people coming together and saying, okay, we're, we're going to follow in the footsteps of the leaders and the people that have um, been, been uh, leading this fight for, for, for uh, you know, decades and um, uh, we're all standing on the shoulders of, of the leaders that have come before us. But um, really, a new, you know, young, new generation that is kind of uh, confronting the, the threats that we're facing. Um, I, I think something that I, now that I listened to, to your discussion, and I've thought about this before, and I wasn't planning on talking about this, but you were talking a lot about how you can track, um, you know, uh, the, if there are any human rights violations, if people are actually walking the talk on the ground and the, your partners, et cetera. Um, uh, I mean, there has been, in, in the context of, of the Amazon and indigenous people's rights, many times uh, we do see human rights violations. I recently had a, a you know, dear friend to mine was threatened by a quite, um, uh, you know, very high executive in a, in a mining company face-to-face, um, -face, and it was uh, quite brutal words that were used. And um, when we took this to the company, they said, oh, there's some link on the website, and you can report that, and um, then we'll look at that. You know, And we don't, in the communities, we don't know what links we should use when we should report these kind of uh, atrocities. Um, but what I think there should be is for us to be able to track back to you right, as investors. Because if you can track to me, 
there is not a lot of transparency when it, you go really, really down, right? And that's why you had to pull out from the projects where you, know, you found human rights violations or you didn't find transparency, you couldn't actually uh, you know, uh, check what was happening. So why don't give, why don't create the tool for indigenous people for people on the ground to actually track back to you and let you guys know? Not some random link on a website, but actually an entire tool, an entire mechanism that, um, that s making sure that we can track back every single step um, back to you. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, going back to kind of restoration and, uh, you know, restoration projects and conservation, uh, the most efficient way of, of actually uh, conserving and protecting ecosystems, uh, bodies of water, uh, forest, is giving indigenous people rights mm -hmm. and, and making sure that indigenous rights are guaranteed. Um, making sure that we have our territorial rights, uh, that our lands are demarcated, that, we, um, that uh, we have the control over what happens in our territories. And I mean, you're the data guy, but um, if we look at data, if we look at numbers, uh, it, it's, it actually shows that the most preserved places in the world are under indigenous custodianship. Um, so it is the most efficient way. We don't need new technology to save the rainforest, for example. We, it, it, the, it's, it's there, and, uh, and I always say this, it's the only thing that we want, in my community at least, is that no one comes there and cuts down the tree, and that's the most simple solution. Of course, we need support to uh, implement other projects when it comes to um, healthcare, edu education, education, et cetera, but, um, uh, it's, it's, it's quite simple when it comes to conservation. Uh, and uh, we just need people to, to let, that, let, let the rainforest, let the forest stay without touching them. Um, and when it comes to restoration, we talk about indigenous inclusion and indigenous people being con like consulted. But it, it doesn't work like that in our communities. We, we have our own structures of governance. We have our own structures of decision making. We have quite developed uh, structures of, of, of decision making and, and uh, of, of governance. And uh, that needs to be taken into account when these, when these projects are wanting to collaborate with indigenous people. And that is making sure indigenous people are actually at the center of decision making, not being consulted after the decisions have already been made. Um, and, and, uh, and that is really respecting the self-determination and autonomy, autonomy um, of indigenous people. Great, thank you, Helena, very much. Yeah, I mean, evidence is just mounting, I'm sure everybody knows this, that when indigenous people who manage what, 60% of the world's land, um, even though it may only have two or 3% of the world's population, something like 60 or 70% of the biodiversity is that. When groups of indigenous people have legal rights and the ability to protect those rights, um, the, uh, the deforestation reduces enormously. Um, uh, just a mounting evidence from institutions like the World Resource Institute, like Rights and Resources Institute, academic institutions. And it's, just, it's just a fact that we need to embed in all our thinking. And, and by the way, this report, again, is really very good on sort of I, precisely the kind of thoughts that Helena laid out um, uh, so, uh, so very well. Luis, how do you see this as you um, 
uh, well, of course, you're close to some of these issues from where you live, but, um, but as, uh, as the CEO of uh, the SBTI. Well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, and such an honor to be in such a distinguished panel and uh, sharing those thoughts with such a, a inspiring leadership. Uh, so obviously, as you said from the beginning, uh, I'm a little biased on this topic, uh, having worked for 15 years, uh, and as you already hinted, being Brazilian, on trying to protect forests and promote better land use in my country. Uh, so, but today, uh, either on a, a not-for-profit trying to use remote sensing to protect forests, or on a, on, a, on a bank trying to promote better practices for farmers, or in the industry trying to regulate that. That, that's, that was my life for 15 years. But for the past year, now my life is uh, leading science-based targets initiative. And uh, what we do is work within different sectors uh, to try to define what good corporate climate action looks like from all the sectors all across the, the globe. Uh, the idea is exactly to define, uh, uh, from, from, to avoid uh, that uh, uh, corporate climate action becomes a storytelling competition, helping companies define from the start what success looks like. So then it's very easy to reharmonize what success looks like, uh, and then you know and you can evaluate progress to, towards that, right? And you do that by two ways. We develop the guidances of what good looks like based on the best available science. And it's difficult, I must say, because we were trying to translate complex scientific concepts into actionable corporate insights. That's navigating the edge of knowledge. But that's what innovation looks like. And then the second thing is that we evaluate if companies' plans adhere to those practices, right? So this is what SBTI does. Trying to, uh, and in all sectors, including food and agriculture, and including uh, other sectors that can use nature-based solutions as what means to also uh, uh, implement that. To that point, then we come to this point of the discussion today, right? Uh, about uh, promoting restoration, promoting nature-based solutions, and uh, how do you guarantee uh, the, as you said, the speed and scale uh, 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 of, of, of guaranteeing that we're guaranteeing that investments are flowing, but we also have the guardrails in place to guarantee that unintended consequences, as Elena uh, rightfully presented, are, are, are met. So there's supply and demand. So there's one issue, which is supply. What are the good investments? What are the good projects? And to that, I'm not going to talk. Elena is, much, uh, Elena is much better positioned than myself, and there are others that are working on what does good investment look like uh, 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 on nature-based solutions. And then there's the demand side, which is what are the good demand for that type of investments? Uh, that's where we come, right? Because uh, what we try to do with those guidances is really define what good looks like. So what are the actions that a company needs to take within their supply chains? Because that's what they need to do first, is mitigate their own uh, uh, business cases, and then what did they do beyond their value chains, and what did they do to support other projects that maybe are thousands of kilometers away from their operations to guarantee that. So that's where we focus on, is guaranteeing that that demand also has the credibility that is needed for those projects. Oh, terrific. Thank you very much indeed. I want to be open now to uh, questions, so at any stage feel free to, um, to, to raise your hand. But I'm going to ask just one question before we, as they're thinking about their questions. Uh, Let's get to you, Suzanne, um, and others may have a, have a thought. The, the Trillion Trees is a wonderful initiative uh, of the World Economic Forum, and you've been very uh, heavily engaged in it, and I hope later on Nicole might, Schwab might just say a word about it. Um, uh, you know, obviously, it's possible to do this wrong, so you need a system in place. I mean, you could be, you know, big industrial, you know, plantations in places where just not paying enough attention either to the ecosystem or to 
inhabitants of that particular area. Could you say a word about sort of how that process happens and what gives you confidence? Because, it, I mean, it's impressive the way I think you're thinking this through. And by the way, the trillion trees, if you, if you, want, um, if you want a sort of way of thinking about this, which is simplistic, but it's actually useful, you know, there used to be six trillion trees in the world. There now are three trillion trees in the world. So this will add a trillion trees by, is it 2030? 2030. 2030. You know, that's a pretty exciting vision if you think about it. Um, anyway, over to you. And sequester about 250 gigatons of carbon. Wow. Um, so it's, and trees, mangroves are really important in the solution. We had a breakfast this morning with PE firms called Money and Mangroves. Um, and we need more investment. Um, the way that we think about it, our mantra sort of right tree, right place, right time, right people. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think there is a danger to have mono crops. You know, that's not what's important. We've been incredibly privileged to be guided on this journey by Dr. Jane Goodall. Um, conservation is first. It's the, it's the most important thing. We need old growth. Um, but we think about it is, you know, it's there are so many biodiversity. You know, we, we have a we have a crisis in, in biodiversity, um, regardless of of climate change at some level. And you know, if we just take mangroves as an example, you know, that's a that's a food source um, for many populations, and it you know provides jobs, it provides storm protection. There's so many you know things outside of just the carbon sequestration that's really important and. I really agree with Helena. Like it's, it sort of reminds me of the days of micro lending when uh, Muhammad Yunus sort of focused on women um, as a way to funnel loans because they had a much higher payback rate. Um, they know, you know, just naturally what to do. You know, indigenous people know exactly what to do. They have the right tools um, already, have had for hundreds of years, and so just empowering local people to make this effort theirs is just such an important part of the criteria. So when we assess these projects, we look at all of those things. We look at biodiversity, we look at you know, jobs, we look at food, we look at is this a project that's being driven by the local community um, and not an, an agricultural company, yes. as an example. Yeah. One you. thing I just wanna also say is TNFD. So there's a, we just hosted a workshop in our London office that there's now kind of a movement. Um, the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, there's now a movement to put the same in for nature. Um, and so we brought together a number of our customers. Um, we have a, you know, we have a, we're a software company. We don't have a huge impact on nature. We have some things with water in our data centers, but um, we also don't own most, you know, our data centers. So, you know, we did our own sort of assessment, but we're thinking about it more on behalf of our customers and this product that I mentioned, how do we put in um, the standards for nature that we need to really be able to track them over time? So I just wanted to, yeah. he was supposed to be also on this panel, but I'm very impressed with the work that they're doing in that area. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and five years from now, we need the same disclosure on nature yes. as we now require for carbon and as you know, some decades ago, we were required for financial uh, issues. Um, uh, the floor's open. Who'd like to ask a question? Yes, and just yeah. say who you are. <clears throat> yes, can you hear me? Oh, <laughs> can you hear me? 
Um, so I'm Jen Jenkins. I'm with Rubicon Carbon. Um, we're a company that has just launched recently, actually, in, with a goal to scale the carbon market for just this kind of investment. Um, I, I'm really interested in this conversation about greenwashing for, for two reasons, right? I think um, I see two main barriers, things that we hear from our customers and our potential customers as we're talking to them about the solutions that we offer. Um, the first one is they're incredibly afraid, right? And they, they are afraid because in many cases, right? So some, some of the projects that we own and participate in are Red Plus projects, right? These are 30-year projects. Mm -hmm. So they might be 10 years in and you don't know. There's a journalist sort of lurking in the corner who's ready to pull out a negative report, you know, on the basis of maybe interviewing one or two folks from the community or somebody who is disgruntled for some other reason might sort of, and then that journalist will prepare a negative report and completely blindside everyone involved um, and make the companies that invested in that project look bad. They've, they've been with the best of intentions, you know, in investing in what they believe is and, and what the um, certifying organizations and the registries have endorsed as a legitimate project. I would love, you know, that's it's extremely frustrating, and I, I would love to hear this group sort of expound on on that particular type of phenomenon. How can we, how can we sort of provide support to companies that are trying to do the right thing, but really end up sort of getting dragged into this um, counterproductive conversation, in my view. Thank the you. Second, Oh, yeah. If I could just, if I just, one more thing. I think the other, and um, actually at WEF yesterday, a report was released that was co-written by Bain and the World Economic Forum, and it did identify a few sort of um, barriers to the carbon market. And one of them, and I would love to hear from um, Mr. Amaral, is the interpretation that companies are making of the SBTI guidance. Um, around investing in offsets has actually had what I believe is probably the opposite impact that, that was intended, right? It's actually chilling the market. Companies are choosing not to invest now in offsets because they believe, for whatever reason, that the guidance tells them not to buy offsets until the year before the rates are targeted. Gotcha. Um. So um, who'd like to take the first uh, question, essentially, which is, um, you know, Good journalism should expose bad things, mm -hmm. but sometimes journalists, um, you know, seize onto a story that might be very micro level, and it's sort of generalized. I mean, presumably, that's why we need data that is verified that we can actually know the truth. Is that right, Catherine? Uh, I, I was actually going to make that very point that I think it really comes down to the um, integrity and authenticity of the data. Um, so I think, firstly, I think data has slightly failed this generation in some senses, which is why a lot of people hopped on various different bandwagons. Companies are very quick to sign up to certifications of all sorts. But sometimes, as I said, you know, when you scratch below the surface, it's not really there. I would say specifically from a corporate perspective, um, having come from a place where I was running a PLC, sometimes there's safety in numbers. So if you can perhaps marshal a group of people who've gone through similar experiences to share learnings, that's a really great place to start because knowledge can really help you um, avoid making the same mistakes. So that might be one thing just to try to sort of build a bit of a coalition of people who are a bit afraid, put it on the table and see what you can do. 
But I think the responsibility of the data providers is to make sure that investors who are frankly parting with money, fiduciary money or private money from a family office or whatever, need to make sure that that data is truly authentic and stands the test of scrutiny. And that's why organizations such as CDP are so important. And one of the things we're really working on is, you know, how can we broaden the scope of the work and the data that we've been gathering over the last 20 years? And how do we make sure that it's accessible? Because if it's not accessible, then no one knows. And so those would be sort of my, my two Ps for what it's worth. And your point on offsetting is spot on, but um, Luis, I'm not going to veer off into your space. Although Luis, sort of are you having a chilling effect on carbon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, I think, as you said at the beginning, uh, 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 Andrew, we are navigating the edge of knowledge, right? We're trying to do stuff that was never done before. And it comes with a little bit bumps on the road that we quickly need to adapt. And one of those, as Jen pointed out, is that there is a misreading and a misperception of that. So I'll make two comments on to that specific question uh, while answering uh, Jens. Uh, so the first, just clarify, thank you for the question because I think I really wanted to touch that, but in three minutes I didn't have the time. Now you gave me enough time to do that. Uh, uh, one minute. In one minute, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, SPTI is not against carbon markets, quite the contrary, right? What the misinterpretation of reading said is, is that the net zero standard says that at the end of your net zero journey, there will always be emissions. And those emissions at the end of the journey, by that time, you absolutely will be obliged to compensate them through removals. And why removals? Because by then, we have to have solved deforestation. If you haven't, we're, we're in a different type of position, right? That's what he says. And folks understood that that was saying, oh, you can only use carbon credits and only use investments only at the end and only for removals. That's not, interpret that's not right, right? What he's saying is it's obligatory at the very end to compensate for your residual emissions. That's one thing. The other thing that we say is you cannot buy your way out of uh, your corporate climate plans, meaning you cannot continue to grow your emissions forever, just go out there in the market and offset everything uh, with, 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 with the carbon markets. That's the other thing, which is true because we want to transfer, transform businesses. But then what we say is that we strongly encourage the investments and folks to go above and beyond their own plans, invest in nature, invest in carbon markets, uh, uh, if, if the two other uh, thing, uh, requirements are met. Uh, we are currently developing a beyond value chain mitigation guidance because we recognize there was this lack of interpretation. So we, we want to facilitate that because we all want more investments into those things. So uh, we are working on that uh, new guidance that is actually going to bring more clarity, Jen, uh, uh, to this type of misinterpretation. So this was just uh, on, the, on, on that question. And finally, Andrew, if I have 30 seconds more to your question, I would say that we are actually facilitating carbon markets and investments. We're all there. 15 years ago, when was the first gold rush of carbon markets, right? And we all know what happens, mm -hmm. crashed. I remember at the time I was doing carbon mar mar markets, uh, uh, I was in the bank investing uh, and creating a, a, a project to restore lands. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, we're one of the first voluntary restoration uh, 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 goals that we were doing at the time. When the project started, all the math was good. At the end, the prices had crashed. It was not even worth to get the auditors to go out there in the field and see if they right. Right. And that happened because demand disappeared. So what SBTI does is actually it creates a demand, right? We are actually helping regulate the market by guaranteeing that demand will exist for that, not only now in the future, uh, in the future to avoid that crash in the future. And one reason that demand disappeared is because the quality of supply was weak and they were, which is what we want to avoid this time around. Uh, other questions? Yes, back there. 
Maybe we'll take a couple if there are. Yes, go ahead and say who you are. Thank you. Hi, my name is Rima Chakrabarthy. Thank you all for being here. I am an investor in early stage biotech, now starting to focus more on biology-based solutions for climate change. Um, a question I have on carbon credit and verification. Um, Susan, Suzanne, you had mentioned um, investing in a company that's focused on tracking and, and you know, there are methodology tracking agencies like Vera, for example, where a number of our companies are actually going through the methodology process with them. And something that happens with all regulation is it takes time. And so there is often at odds this relationship between moving fast, innovating fast, and then being at odds with the time scale of regulation. Knowing how important quality is to this, that's what we've been talking about, things around permanence and, and the actual size of the offset and, and all of these other points you all understand better than I do, how do we balance the speed of, of solving this problem with regulation? Is it by relying on a number of third parties to regulate? Is there at some point a central agency which gut tells me will take longer to regulate? I'd love your thoughts on that. Mm. Well done. Um, well, we could be here all day on this subject. Um, <laughs> anybody want to give a crisp uh, answer? to that? I think we do need a global standard. Um, I am glad about the, the regulation in Europe. It's looking different in the US. I think we need one global standard. I, I, I'm a deep believer in that. I also just want to say, you know, um, there's good systems for transparency today, and they're getting better every day. So Forest Watch, under the World Resource Institute, um, has been incredible. And at this, and Andrew would know this more so than I, but has been at this, I think, for a decade um, in trying to really bring transparency. And and there's a there's a program that you can talk about if you want to around the, the carbon and land lab, That's which right. I'm fascinated about. So we've we've got so much better technology today that we can do this fast uh, and and good and get better. Sort of the evolution. Yeah, I mean these are these are early days, and your point is absolutely right. You yeah, know, there is a there is a need to go fast, but there's it, it takes too long, um, and some of the investments w will will require a bit of time. But once you get them in place, then you'll be able to do lots of them quickly. So, for example, on nature-based solutions, you really want a jurisdictional approach. Yeah, um, project by project might be quicker. Uh, but it, the quality won't be so good. Once you've got a jurisdictional approach, you've got the governments with plans that you can monitor. And as uh, Suzanne says, we now have, for example, the Land and Carbon Lab, which the Bezos Earth Fund supports, and WRI and various other organizations uh, uh, run it. I mean, we, we will be able to know three years from today not only every tree that's falling in the world, basically, um, 10 meters by 10 meters everywhere on the Earth's planet every month or so, uh, we'll also know trees that are growing. We'll be able to capture that. We'll be able to see crops that are changing, land use that's changing, and we'll be able to see the carbon embedded in all of those transitions. So for the first time ever, we'll be able to, be able to get the so-called carbon flux at the hectare by hectare level. Well, you think about what that will enable us to do. It won't be perfect to start with, but over the years, because of the way that you have sort of continuous learning algorithms, and, and ground truthing that helps get the better algorithms through drones and so on, uh, we'll, we'll get really uh, quite good. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, we, we have to head towards the end of the session now. I'm going to ask each of you um, to say one thing that you plan to do in the coming year that you think would help us get more clarity 
on this issue that we've been discussing today? Should we start at the far end, Catherine? Thanks, Andrew. Then, <laughs> that's right, because <laughs> whoever goes first is hardest, isn't it? Uh, you... So since you put me on the spot, I'm going to go for <coughs> two things I'm going to do with my two different hats on, which I think is only fair. So with my CDP hat on, we are going to relentlessly pursue better reporting around biodiversity. And absolutely, I think touching on Suzanne's point about TNFD, I think you know, creating the standard and making sure it becomes mandatory, we're all in for that. Um, in terms of my GIB asset management hat on, we are absolutely committed to continuing to support the Mangroves Working Group, um, the, the, blue, the Blue Ocean Agenda, um, and trying to crowd in more private sector financing because it's not one person that can tackle all of this. So bring authenticity, bring money to bear on the scale of the problem. That's what well we'll do. Said. Thank you. Luis? I think we were going to do two things, uh, uh, Andrew. One, is guaranteed that growth on SBTI, which is growth of demand for this type of investments, right? Uh, so companies that get targets instead to say, here's what I want to achieve, those are the ones that are actually going to be triggered to be investing into, 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 into those solutions. Uh, we've, we had, last year when I was here at WEF, we had 2,000 companies committed. Now we have 4,000 com companies committed, 2,000 companies out of which have already validated. So it doubled the size. That exponential growth needs to continue to guarantee that this wave of additional investments on nature uh, exists, uh, including companies that will do that outside their supply chains, as uh, such as yourselves, but also the food and agricultural companies that need to do that inside their supply chains. This is one. And then the second thing, uh, we're, we're working, as I mentioned, on this new guidance, which we call very jargony, uh, we need a better names, but beyond value chain mitigation. It's exactly to Jen's point, to try to clarify more and more to the marketplace, what are the incentives of these incentive structures? What are the guidance and standards on how to do best the investments uh, when they're not within Great. your operations and then they're far away? Thank you very much. And I'll then. just do one thing with both hats, which is um, really be guided by youth, in particular, in indigenous communities, as decision-making bodies. One, um, we were talking earlier about Earth Uprising, which is a group I'm very involved in. And the founder of that was um, inspired to, to set it up as a result of forest fires and, and asthma. And um, I'm just incredibly humbled. I'm impressed deeply by the work of young people. And I think they deserve a seat at the table. Um, I, I'm appreciative to give um, panels and all of the things to get voice and uh, out there, but I actually want to take a different approach next year. And I think Nicole and I are on the same page as it relates to the one T effort. But for Salesforce, I'm going to give a youth council my business plan um, and say what's missing, where what makes sense, and I, I really want I want um, more youth voices in like the decision making context. Mm, wow. That's wonderful. Well, that's a very natural segue, uh, <laughs> over to you. Yeah, I agree, and I think uh, young people and indigenous people need to be at the, at the tables where decisions are being made. Otherwise, um, I mean, uh, we have seen a lot of failure before. We need, to, we need to change strategy. We need to make sure that we have new people um, on these tables uh, making decisions. Um, I think you know, Andrew, I think my commitment can be to hold all of you accountable. Yeah. Mm. Good. <laughs> yeah. 
Good, <laughs> great. Um, a short sentence, but with real content to it. Mm, yeah. That's brilliant. Um, look, we have to bring this to an end now. Um, I'm, I'm struck by the sort of genuineness of this, um, this conversation. And it's one thing, I mean, I'd commend you, um, Nicole, and the, the WEF uh, team for, uh, for this, this WEF. We're really having very genuine conversations. I mean, yesterday we had a brilliant session bringing renewable energy investors together with the miners that find those precious minerals that are required in order to build a, a, you know, a, a windmill together with the nature community. And on the issue, essentially, of permitting, you know, and everything is the point about yeah. things going slow. It's a brilliant sort of transparent, honest um, <coughs> confrontation. It's exactly where we ought to be right now. And, and it, it seems to me that coming out of, of this session, some things should be absolutely non-negotiable. So engaging in the right way with indigenous people, as is sort of suggested here, that should be non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, no trade-offs there. Um, and we need to, we need to, I mean, uh, the overwhelming message is, is data and verifiable data. I was struck by your question about, you know, a journalist does a story and how do you defend against it? Well, imagine an equivalent, I suppose the journalist does a story on your finances. You know, Salesforce has a great big hole in its finance. What would you do? You wouldn't try and defend it. You'd go and talk to the auditors who audited the accounts, and you'd talk to the accountants, and you'd say, where is it true? And you'd be able to see it either is true or isn't true, and if it is true, you fire the auditors. Um, if it isn't true, then the journalist has no story. We're, we're, we're baby steps at the moment. And fair enough, we've only been in this business for 10 years, but we need, over the next decade, to get to that situation where we could have that degree of transparency and verifiability. Um, so thank you, Nicole. Could you, why don't you end us? <laughs> thank you very much, Andrew. I want to thank our uh, the panelists and thank you for this parallel as well with the financial um, uh, sector. So we're very much committed at the World Economic Forum to everything that's been said here, to accountability, to transparency, to trust, um, but also to this transition towards a nature positive uh, net zero economy. And um, with 1T.org, we've also just released the first set of 30 implementation reports from the 80 pledges that we have today. The first 30 have released um, a kind of a tracking of where their implementation is at in partnership with the IUCN Restoration Barometer. So we now have a mechanism for the private sector to track their pledges. And I think this and everything you've heard here are all examples of efforts that can help us bring more transparency in the system and thereby encourage more companies to join because they know that what will be highlighted are the good efforts and kind of this recognition for, for, for the positive efforts um, and you know, moving us away from, from the greenwashing. And scrutiny is a good thing. So we actually welcome this additional scrutiny so that we can recognize what good looks like. So we wanna invite all of you to, to join this movement and uh, to join Wanti.org and, and our other initiatives at the forum. And if you have any questions, of course, please reach out to us. Uh, we are here to, to support this, this transition. Thank you all. Wonderful, yeah. thank you Thanks. so much. And thank you, Catherine, Luis, Suzanne, Helena. Well done. Thank you. Great. <clears throat> Thanks.